Hello and welcome to the Own It podcast. I'm Iona Bain, a money writer and now author of Own It. I'm joined on this podcast by Simon Bain, a retired business and finance journalist who also happens to be my dad. We're under one roof during lockdown, so we've decided to start having some funny, frank and fascinating conversations about the world of finance, which we just happen to be recording and bringing to you here on the Own It podcast. And we'll be inviting some top-notch financial guests to join us along the way. Now, on this week's episode, we're doing something a little bit different. And that's because on Tuesday, my new book was published. Own It is the essential young person's guide to the world of investing. And it has been a huge labor of love for me over the past two years. It's taken a lot of hard work and effort and a lot of coffee and occasionally beer to get to this point. But now it's out there in the world and I'm very proud of it. I really appreciate everybody who's been saying nice things about the book so far. And I've even had photos of the book sent to me by people who've already bought a copy. And that's just wonderful to see. And it really makes me feel the hard work and effort was all worth it. So thank you. Now, we had a virtual book launch on Tuesday, which was a bit strange, not going to lie. But we had a really nice crowd join us for a virtual Q&A. And I also sat down with Simon to discuss why I wrote the book and what I cover in it. And you're about to hear a recording of that conversation. It'll hopefully give you a little taste of the book and also tease out some of the issues that I want to explore with Simon on this podcast in the weeks and months to come. Plus, you're going to hear a little bit more about how I got into writing about money in the first place, because it's a rather unconventional origin story. It involves a piggy bank and it does not end well. That's all I'm going to say for now. Let's get into the conversation and find out more. Here's my chat with Simon. Let's have a quick history mm-hmm. of who you are, mm-hmm. how you got here, yep. um, and how you got into writing about money. Well, I've had a somewhat unorthodox journey, as you might say. Um, I am actually a trained musician, and I got up to a very high level as a musician in my youth, and I was convinced, really, for most of my childhood and teenage years that I would be a professional musician in one way or another. Um, So I studied music at university. I then spent a few years trying to be a singer-songwriter or a pop star, really. I mean, I said that it was being a singer-songwriter, but really I wanted to be a pop star. Um, And I just thought, why not? You know, I think that period after you leave university is the time when you go and, and pursue crazy dreams like that. So I did that for a couple of years. I played in lots of bands and I had a blast. Um, However, funnily enough, I didn't make an awful lot of money. (laughs) This was around the time of the recession. It was post 2008. The financial crash had had a really quite devastating effect on the labour market at that time. And it was just a really tough period for any young person, let alone a young person trying to do something quite challenging like making it in music. So there came a point where I realised that I actually had to have a plan B, that I had to go out and find a real job (laughs) and that I also needed to learn about money because I was clueless, really. I mean, I know that you had had this experience Mm. writing about money and business, but we'd never talked about it. Mm. You know, you and and mum were always very supportive of me going off and doing music as a career instead. Mm. But there did come a point where I just developed this real interest in money issues because I was concerned about money. I was worried if I'd ever be financially independent. My friends were really struggling to find work at that time. And it just became a really big issue on my mind. And I think the, the straw that broke the camel's back was I was a pianist in a bar in Glasgow and I'd get paid 
cash in hand and I would keep the cash in a piggy bank and then we came home one night do you remember this mm, rather, yes. yeah. <laughs> and uh, the house was burgled and I, when I'd gone up to my room I found out that the only thing that had been taken really was was the piggy bank because I kept one or two pieces of jewellery locked away somewhere safe. But of course, the piggy bank was there on the on the windowsill and it may as well have had a big neon light on the top of it going, please steal me. I've got you know loads of cash inside. And it did have lots of cash. It was all the money that I'd earned as a musician at that point. I was really gutted about it. And I realised I'm going to have to get to grips with this whole subject. So then you guys were talking to me about what I might do next. Mm. And you said, well, why don't you start a blog? Yeah. And I thought, well, why would I write a blog about money? <laughs> you know, I don't know anything about it. Who would listen to me? Mm. What would I get from it? But actually, then I started thinking about the best way to learn about these things is to write about sure. them and is to have a reason to research and get, you know, informed about them. And writing a blog was a really good way of doing that. So sure. that's when I started Young Money Blog using a very basic WordPress account. Mm -hmm. And I did that for, for several years whilst I went and got various jobs in, in the media. And then it was about 2016 when suddenly there was this real interest emerging in millennial money issues. I was being asked to go on TV and radio a lot. I was approached to write my first book, Spare Change. And I realized that actually young people really did need this voice on personal finance. They really did need somebody to be writing about these issues from that young perspective. And I just realized I had to step up to the plate and, and deliver. So that's what I did. And I haven't looked back since really. My career now is all about how young people can engage with money and get better at managing their finances. And what do you want to achieve with the new book, really? To get young people to understand that by all means, your basic short-term finances are really important, but you've also got to take things to the next level. And I think that we've seen in recent times that actually young people have got a tremendous appetite for investing. Mm. So many young people now opening accounts on platforms, trying to get into investing, but it's not mm. entirely straightforward. Yeah. And you really do need to understand what you're getting into. So I wanted to write the book because I really did feel like young people needed that accessible, friendly guide through the maze that is investing. They needed that help demystifying the world of investing and, and telling them what the opportunities were, but also what the risks were. Sure. And did you feel you had to sort of say, hang on a minute, isn't this all capitalism and propping up the system? Should we really be joining the ranks of of the old investors? Was that an issue you felt you had to deal with? Definitely, because some people might say that really investing is just propping up a system that is, you know, past its sell-by date. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's this interesting question of whether you can realistically affect change as an investor. And mm. we know that young people are very idealistic. We know that they care about where their money is invested, that they want their, their investments to be more environmentally mm. friendly and so on. But what I think is that you've, you've got to be embracing the potential of shareholder culture, I think, mm. to try and drive positive changes, to make companies more accountable. And also as a young person, you can't pour from an empty cup. If you're not building your own resources and building your own assets, then you're going to not be in, in a position to help other people and to be a really useful, productive citizen and member of society. And you, I think you deal with pensions that probably crosses over into how people can do something about their investments, doesn't it? Yes. Young people need to understand what their pension is, because actually you'd be amazed at how 
few people understand mm. that they are invested in pensions at work at work because of something called auto enrollment which was introduced in 2012 and it basically meant most young people anyone over the age of 22 who earns over 10,000 pounds a year is automatically enrolled into their workplace pension so firstly you need to grasp that fact and by extension that you are already investing money you know when you say to young people you are probably already an investor they'll say, oh, I didn't realize that. Mm. But actually that is the case because your pension is invested in the stock markets. But also you have to understand that, that what you're doing at the moment through your workplace pension is unlikely to generate the kind of income that you'll expect in retirement. Yeah. But we do need a more kind of grown up nuanced conversation around pensions because at the moment the pensions industry does tend to say to young people you're not saving enough money save more money and it's more complicated than that yeah. it's not just about saving more money although obviously that would be great it's also about understanding where you're saving understanding if you're taking enough risk because mm. that is a theme that runs right throughout this book really coming to terms with what risk is and the fact that you're going to have to take some risk as an investor because apart from anything if you put all your money in savings then you are running the risk of inflation eating away at your savings so you'll have to take some risk but you've got to take informed calculated risks and your pension is definitely part of that Housing is a big issue for young people. You tackle whether or not they should be investing to save up for their first home, for instance? Yes, I do, because I think that a product that's really changed the conversation around housing and whether we should be saving or investing for it is the Lifetime ISA, mm -hmm. which is available for all under 40s. You can save or invest the Lifetime ISA. And I felt I needed to address whether to, whether to save or invest because a lot of younger people really don't know which is the best way to go. And I would say there are no easy answers. I firstly do think that housing is going to be a goal that will be important to young people for some time to come. And that the reasons for that are complicated, but that we have a very housing centric culture in this country. We're very pro home ownership and we have lots of public policy and products really designed to reward home ownership. So young people will have this understandable aspiration to save up for their own home. But whether you should save for it through a cash lifetime mm. ISA or invest, it's really down to your own appetite for risk. How long you think it'll take, presumably, as well? Yeah, how long do you think it'll take? Because in some parts of the country, it could take well over five years. And, and of course, one of the basic principles of investing that I make clear in the book is that ideally you want to be investing for at least five years to really ride out the kind of ups and downs of the stock market. I, I kind of liken it to a roller coaster. And the fact that when you're on a roller coaster, you can't really get off at the top and say, I'm not enjoying it anymore. You know, you've got to just stay on the roller coaster and see it through to the end, which is where your goal is. It's at the bottom where you don't enjoy it, actually. Well, yeah, 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 that's true. That's okay. true. So that's the first part of the book, I think, isn't it? It's mm -hmm. really the the why. Yes. The why young people should be getting on board. Yes. And then you move on in the second part to telling them how. Yes. So the second part of the book is very much the how of investing. But it's a very big frontier. Mm -hmm. How did you how did you marshal it? How did you decide to uh, to handle it? With difficulty, to be honest. I went back to the drawing board several times because when you've set yourself the task of demystifying the whole landscape of investing, um, you get a little bit daunted. I decided really to start with the piece of technology that we all own now and which will probably be our portal into the world of investing and that's our phone. So I thought about how financial technology has evolved over the years and I really located the roots of our current 
uh, investing culture in the 1980s when the big bang led to the deregulation of the stock markets and it opened up investing. Yeah. Not completely, it took many more years before that happened, but we started to see with people being able to buy shares in, in BT and so on, sure. the birth of that shareholder culture. And then we had the 90s and the noughties, which saw, first of all, platforms really opening up investing to the public. And I even mentioned you mm. and the fact that you'd started investing yeah. um, in the late 90s and early 2000s, along with millions of others around the time of the dot-com boom. And then after that, what we've really seen in the past 10 years is the explosion of fintech on our phones, which has led to developments such as free trading, which has really shaken up the whole landscape of investing and is providing this much needed disruption actually in the investing market. Mm. Because I think in the 90s and noughties, these platforms like Harbury's Lansdowne kind of came out of nowhere and suddenly became some of the most powerful forces in investing in the UK and brought a lot of you know benefits as, with that. But also they, they became very powerful and mm. they ended up promoting a particular kind of way of investing, right. which was through active funds and we, I talk a lot about how active funds work in the book but how they're not the only game in town mm. that also with the rise of passive investing we've seen that there is an alternative that can be more affordable because if you are with an underperforming active yes. fund manager yes. then the fees are really going to affect your overall performance in the long term mm. so I think I just explored how the last 10 years have presented a lot of game-changing developments in terms of investing and how younger people could maybe tap into some of those developments and I think you split the the areas of fintech basically into three Mm-hmm. And look at them in turn, don't you? So broadly speaking, I think the three that young people need to understand and be aware of are robo-advisors, platforms, and free trading apps. I talk about robo-advisors in a lot of detail in the book because for a lot of young people, they don't want to necessarily have all the responsibility of managing their portfolio. They are quite happy to outsource it all to a robo-advisor. And the robo-advisor is not the same as going to see a financial advisor. And I make it very clear that actually there are big differences between real financial advisors and these digital wealth managers that you need to understand, but that they can provide that affordable route into ready-made portfolios for younger investors. Then there are platforms, which we've talked about. Hmm. They've helped democratize investing for sure, and that they offer a far greater range of options for investors and give you that choice if that's what you want but also you've got these free trading apps kind of snapping at their heels now and offering that low cost uh route into stock market investing but i think that presents the risk that they are maybe pushing investors a little bit too much towards the hot tech stocks that Mm. we know have done incredibly well over the past 10 years the fangs Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and so on. But actually, there is a whole world out there. We could be seeing events in the stock market now, Mm. um, such as potential inflation coming down the tracks that will change the outlook for those stocks. So that's a more kind of detailed macroeconomic overview. But that's what I kind of talk about in relation to free trading apps and the dangers there. You do actually do some macroeconomics at the beginning of the book as well, don't you? Try and yeah. take people through a basic view of some of these concepts yeah. of inflation yeah. and so on, which is which is helpful to get them sort of grounded. So the first chapter, I, I talk about why young people have struggled to own it. Significantly QE, quantitative yeah. easing, yeah. with central banks you know, creating much more money to buy assets, which has pushed up the price of assets. And young people have really been left out of that whole 
asset boosting bonanza, as I call sure. it in the book. And, sure. and I think that this has left a lot of young people feeling very alienated and disillusioned about the financial system, as well sure. as obviously sure. the fact that the financial crash itself exposed a lot of flaws and faults in the financial yeah. system. And I think that for a while, young people weren't channeling that necessarily in a very productive way. But now I think that they are starting to understand that their money does have power and influence and that they are maybe looking at their savings and investments and thinking, hmm, maybe this is the way that I can affect change. Talking of which, the people in the States have been trying to affect a lot of change lately, but mainly uh, attacking their hedge funds yeah. and uh, sort of manipulating the price of, of individual shares. But it's sort of shown that, you know, small investors do have some power. Mm-hmm. Is, is that an encouraging sign or is it actually a bit worrying that they're piling in to this kind of strategy? Well, over the past year or two, we have undoubtedly seen some very weird events in the US stock market in particular. And actually, the uh, controversy that you're referring to there with GameStop, Mm. it's not the first time it's happened. And in the book, I talk about how this community on Reddit, Wall Street Bets, Mm. has been responsible for some quite weird events, such as the explosion of interest in hearts. This is when when they were bidding up a company that was virtually bust in the first place. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But um, in the US, one of the reasons for that is that there have been stimulus checks sent out to those who have been unable to work during the pandemic. So they've been receiving free money. And for a lot of those people, they think, well, why don't I just use that to try investing and take a punt on these companies? But we don't have that here in the UK. And actually, there is research from Finamize and and other organisations which showed that here in the UK, younger investors are more considered. They're more thoughtful. Um, They're not just rushing into the hottest stocks around and, and that they are not just solely concerned with a get-rich-quick strategy. Again, um, get-rich-quick is very much the province of influencers on social media, which mm-hmm. I think you deal with yes. in, in a fairly rigorous way. <laughs> yes. Why? Why is it a big issue now? Well, I think some people might say that I'm an influencer, and it's probably at this point that I should stress that I'm not a qualified financial advisor. I've been writing about these issues for you know nearly 10 years, but there's a big difference between somebody who writes and talks about them and someone who offers that financial advice. And I make it very clear in the book that if you are looking for that really personalised, tailored advice, then you need to seek out a financial advisor. However, there are lots of people online who are not making that clear and who are offering that level of advice, but they don't have the qualifications. And a lot of the time, they don't really even have the experience and expertise. And they may be telling people what they want to hear Mm. as opposed to what they really need to hear. And there is a big difference between the two. So I really talk about the kind of more benign end of the spectrum, which is just people who are maybe not making it clear that investing is inherently risky, that you might not get back what you put in, and that there are certain sensible strategies that you need to think about as an investor rather than just put it all in Bitcoin. But there's the other end of the spectrum, which is the the one where there are outright fraudsters on the likes of Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube that are saying you can make money doing things like Forex and spread betting. These are not suitable strategies for any beginner investors. And I spend a fair bit of time really unpacking why that whole area is, is a Pandora's box of risks for younger investors. What's your take on Bitcoin? Well, I write a chapter about it in the book and I describe it as a kind of as a Pied Piper of money, sort of luring young people away from the boring old adults in the town, you know, talking about 
stock market investing. Bitcoin's kind of luring them into this cave of wonders filled with guaranteed riches. I'm not totally anti-Bitcoin at all, but I certainly think that you need to be clear-eyed about the risks. You need to understand that it may never become a kind of fully functional currency, that at the moment, certainly, it is a very volatile asset and that you could put a little bit of money into it and hope for the best. But if you were to put all your money into it, that would be criminally risky yeah. and reckless. Actually, uh, you need to be aware that it's a lot more complicated to buy Bitcoin than some platforms out there would have you believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, again, if you're not prepared to really do your homework and find out the absolute safest ways to manage your Bitcoin, then there is a risk that it could be stolen. That's something, again, that's not discussed enough in the online conversation around Bitcoin. And there are other exotic assets in the sort of crowdfunding area, which I think you uh, you round up as well, don't you? Yes. Yeah, so I also talk about crowdfunding and peer-to-peer, both of which I think have been getting more scrutiny as mm. a result of the economic downturn. Mm. Because prior to that, I think that projects on crowdfunding platforms were possibly seen as being much less risky than they actually are. Mm. And the same goes for peer-to-peer. And again, I'm not anti-crowdfunding or peer-to-peer, but certainly I think that people need to be careful about treating them as better routes to prosperity than stock market investing and saving. And I also talk about mini bonds because there's been a real scandal around mismarketing of mini bonds online and perhaps the perception that they are just like savings bonds when in fact they are very high risk investment products that beginner investors should probably steer clear of. But it just goes to show that actually anything that seems too good to be true Mm. probably is. So you obviously talk a lot about what young investors should be careful about and Mm -hmm. shouldn't do. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you must move on to what they should do. So I talk about the need to just have a strategy because I think that sounds very obvious, but I think a lot of young people are just kind of diving into the stock market, getting started, but they're not really thinking firstly about what they're investing for, how long they're going to be investing for, and what kind of strategy that they're going to pursue. And at a very basic level, you need to understand, am I going to use a robo-advisor? Am I going to take control of my own portfolio. If I'm going to take control of my portfolio, then what am I going to buy into? Am I going to buy individual shares and assets or am I going to use a fund or an ETF? It's very easy to just buy a few shares and hope for the best. If you do that, then there's a real risk that you'll get your fingers burnt and that you'll make those big losses. And actually in the book, I talk about how If you make those big losses early on in your investing career, then you could end up being very mentally scarred by it. We're not having a a serious enough conversation about the mental health issues surrounding investing, Mm. Uh, but they are real and you've got to take them seriously. You've got to uh, manage those risks responsibly, not just for your finances, but for your mental health too. So the motto of the blog, I seem to recall, is get informed. Yes. Um, You think young people should be as informed as possible um, without going to extremes before they start start off? Yeah, I think that you've got to strike a balance because there's only so much information and research out there, actually, for the retail investor. Mm. I think a lot more information is available than was previously the case. What's interesting is that actually women investors tend to have this sort of higher threshold of certainty than male investors. This is what the research Mm. seems to be suggesting, which is one reason why female investors are a bit more cautious than male investors. And I think the lesson that we can take away from that is that everybody has got that threshold of certainty and you've got to establish that it's not too high 
but that it's also not too low and that you're not going into investments just because you have a hunch and an instinct that you think it's probably going to keep on doing well, especially if it has done well in, in previous years. There's got to be a well thought out rationale for why you're doing what you're Fine. doing. It might be proved wrong, mm. but the point is you can justify it to yourself. Don't women actually make better returns despite that? <laughs> there is research showing that as well. There is research showing that. Yeah. It's quite controversial mm. research. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I do think that there is a case for, for saying that female investors may do better because they trade less yeah, well, and because they maybe don't panic as much yeah. when stock markets fall. So I think that's another lesson that we can take away from that talking about panicking when markets fall everybody had to deal with that last year if mm -hmm. they were invested yeah and i think you uh, you treat the reader to a little peek into how it affected <laughs> you don't you yes i do what, what's the thinking behind that it's really important to be honest if you're writing about these issues mm. i've only been investing since 2016 and there's a temptation to make out that you you know far more than you actually do and even people who've been investing for years and years mm. are still learning mm. and i think the best way that you can demonstrate the lessons that you've learned is by sharing the mistakes that you've <laughs> made as well as the successes yeah. so um in my last chapter i decided fairly late on in the writing process that i would do my 2020 investing diary i did talk about what my real investing experience was last year the highs and the lows and the ups and the downs and the things that i learned along the way and i'm hoping that as people read that chapter really that will crystallize a lot of the lessons and and themes that i've been talking about throughout the whole book sure so that's your investing journey what, what do you want young people to take from this book really in terms of their attitude to to being investors what i would love young people to take away from this is that investing is not a competition investing is your own personal journey that mm. it's about what's right for you and your goals and you don't have to have all your goals perfectly mapped out mm. in advance i do a chapter in the book on the fire movement financial independence retire early and the fact that, you know, I don't think that we should all be aiming to retire at 40 necessarily, but I think if it makes us think about what we want out of life, then that's no bad thing. And if anything, COVID has perhaps made us really think much more carefully about what we do with our money and why we spend money and save money in the way that we do. You can follow some sensible time-honoured strategies that will help you manage your risks and stop you getting too pulled in by that get-rich-quick narrative online. And that investing is not the same as gambling, and it's not a game. And if you start treating it as a game, it's game over. Final question. There are some lovely illustrations in the book. I think you wanted to share one. All throughout, really, there are beautiful illustrations by Rob Smith. I think my favourite one, however, is at the beginning of the chapter that I do on pensions, because I talk in the chapter about how pensions have changed a lot, and how nowadays you're not likely to get a generous final salary pension scheme if you're a private sector worker. In fact, the chances of you getting a scheme like that are about as high as Kim Kardashian bringing out a line of thermal underwear. So I, I said to Rob, why don't we do an illustration for the beginning of that chapter of Kim K selling some thermals with this shop title, Pensions Are Sexy. Maybe that's pushing it slightly, but certainly pensions can be really fascinating and rewarding to learn about. That's probably my favourite illustration, but there are lots. It's been very, very difficult to pick. So there we go. That was my conversation with Simon at the virtual book launch for Own It, How Our Generation Can Invest Our Way to a Better Future. It's out now and you can buy it online from Amazon, Waterstones and my publisher Harriman House. It's available as a paperback and as an audiobook narrated by me. 
Plus, if you're listening to this podcast on the day it's released, which is Friday the 19th of March, then you can buy the ebook version for just $2.99, which is an absolute bargain. But hurry because that offer ends on Friday the 19th of March. Now, before we wrap up, I just want to let you know that I now have a weekly financial column in a national newspaper. Yes, you heard that right. I will be writing every Wednesday for the iNewspaper and inews.co.uk. So if you want to check out my column, make sure you pick up a copy of the iNewspaper or check out inews.co.uk and click on the money section. Next week, I'll be talking to David Ricketts, journalist and author of a new book on the downfall of Neil Woodford and how Britain's most famous fund manager went from hero to zero. That should be a fascinating conversation. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and do give us a positive rating and review if you're enjoying it. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you'll join us for next week's podcast. Mm-hmm.